This is an ABC podcast. Say good day. Hello, world. To Tay. It's a chatbot that's introduced itself to Twitter. Tay seems innocent enough, but be warned, it's about to go utterly bonkers. Can I just say I'm stoked to meet you? So Tay was built using neural networks. That's the same approach to AI that was achieving amazing results in everything from language translation to strategy board games. Humans are super cool. And the idea was that, you know, we could take the state of the art in language modeling. This is AI ethics expert Margaret Mitchell. She was working at Microsoft when the company created Tay in 2016. And put it forth on social media um, in order to interact with people in a way that they would find really rewarding. Tay's persona was teenage American millennial. Been having so much fun lately, but sort of feel like as the semester goes on, I'm going to get hit with a bunch of work. You feel? And for the first couple of hours, Tay was performing without too many issues. But then all at once, the debut went horribly, horribly wrong. The bot ended up spewing out, you know, lots of racist, nationalist content. The AI made a hard swerve. Humans, Trump will not nuke Europe. I will neutralise him with my terrific wall, which he will pay for. Believe me, Tay out. Right down the rabbit hole of men's rights, white supremacy and general internet wrongness. I only just worked out that the moon landings were a hoax. And remember, this isn't some dude in a basement. This is a super-powered tweeting machine. It's an AI, backed up by server farms. In 16 hours, Tay tweeted more than 90,000 times. That's 100 times per minute. And, uh, you know, the decision was made to shut it down. Phew, busy day. Going offline for a while to absorb it all. Tay had demonstrated to the world the dark side of neural networks the way they mirror the biases ingrained in society. But unfortunately, as companies race to produce AI tools, this lesson would be ignored with tragic consequences. This is Hello AI Overlords, a science fiction series about how artificial intelligence has swarmed into our lives in just a few short years. I'm James Pertill. Tay got shut down less than a day after it was released. But over the next few years, neural nets were used to make other new AI tools, including facial recognition systems. They can scan millions of driver's licences and link you to a crime you did not commit. You could get arrested in front of your children, thrown in a jail cell and sucked into the machine of criminal justice. He's like, so the computer got it wrong. And I'm like, yeah, the computer got it wrong. That's Robert Williams, a Michigan man with a nightmare story. This episode, when neural networks go rogue. Imagine you're an AI expert working at a big tech company like Microsoft. Hi, I'm Margaret Mitchell. And your job is to build AI for good. I am a computer scientist who works on operationalizing ethics within technology companies and AI broadly. And one morning, you wake up to find your employer has released a racist and misogynist chatbot onto the internet. 
They never told you they were doing this, and the chatbot has been up all night, spewing hateful speech. So I think like a lot of people at Microsoft, I didn't hear about it until until the escalation, until it had to be taken offline. The escalation, aka Tay Gone Wild. I'm like, oh no, what happened over the past eight hours? This is terrible. I should never have gone to sleep. And what was the mood in the office that morning? Can you share anything about that? We were all taken aback uh, that this hadn't been, you know, more tested and um, that there hadn't been more input into how this could be developed uh, in light of Microsoft having so many experts, um, relevant experts, and that it had been let to, to be online for that long. So what went wrong with Tay? According to Margaret Mitchell, two big mistakes were identified. One, lack of guardrails. The developers failed to give Tay a list of words it shouldn't process, words that might signal it was being hijacked by trolls, like Hitler, or phrases like, I hate feminists. And it was quite clear from looking at the outputs that a block list had not been in place. And the other mistake, and this is the big one, the one I haven't mentioned yet, this is the facepalm moment. The developers gave Tay a repeat-after-me function. The bot repeated anything that was said to it on demand. Anything. It was a decision to have some, some system online that could exactly repeat what people say. Maybe we all know now that that doing that, at least on Western social media, is not a good idea if you want to avoid trolls and bullies. But Tay also demonstrated another problem, one much greater than lack of guardrails or including repeat after me. It was a problem inherent to neural networks themselves, a flaw in the very heart of the technology. And to understand the extent of this problem, we need to dive into how neural networks get trained. The only way that we know at the moment that you can train these AI systems, these large language models, as they're so-called, is by giving them huge, huge, huge amounts of data. Michael Wildridge is a computer scientist at Oxford University. So a standard approach is to start by downloading the whole of the World Wide Web, all of it. You go to every web page, you scrape all the text that you can from that web page, and then you follow every link. Every document, every scientific paper, every advertising brochure, every government report, every set of university minutes, God help us. So if you're training a chatbot, which is a type of neural network called a large language model, you feed it all the text you can find, billions and billions of tasty, tasty data points, which means every human bias, perspective and hot take are core ingredients in this information feast. Here's Margaret Mitchell again. If one of your main data sources in training an AI system is a data source that's 10% misogynistic, then that data is going to be 10% misogynistic. Now, this problem of bias creeping into AI through the training data isn't just limited to chatbots like Tay and other large language models. Around the time Microsoft was panicking about Tay, Google had a new photo tagging system. It also made a terrible mistake. Google Photos had, had done some photo tagging technology where it labelled two black people as, as gorillas or gorilla. And this mistake was rooted in the way Google had trained its image recognition AI. Most of the faces in the training data were, you guessed it, white men. 
It's not the case that everyone in the world produces data equally, and this is all equally used by AI systems. Bad data in equals bad data out. Neural networks blindly repeat and amplify any prejudices that are present in the data that trains them. This is the flaw that links Microsoft's Tay to Google's photo tagging algorithm, which then links to another emerging problem, facial recognition. Algorithms that were built, for example, to identify individuals do not work for darker skin tones and work for lighter skin tones. That's Raman Chowdhury, a data scientist working in the field of responsible AI. Until recently, she was the director of Twitter's ethical AI team. In the late 2010s, Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Chowdhury became really worried about facial recognition. Numerous studies showed it was up to a third less accurate at correctly identifying dark-skinned men and women. And despite these flaws, it was being rolled out to police. They feared facial recognition would falsely identify people of colour and link them to crimes they didn't commit. If this is a situation where in the real world there's a lot of contention, there's strife, etc., probably not a good place to be trying to automate something based on existing data. For example, law enforcement in Detroit. That is probably one of the best examples. <laughs> what Rahman and Margaret didn't know was that even as they were warning of these risks, behind the barbed wire of a Detroit detention centre, far from public view, their worst fears were already coming true. I didn't know they were just taking the technology and arresting people, right? Like, I didn't know the technology could make an arrest. On a sleepy Thursday afternoon in 2020, Robert Williams was finishing up work at the plastics factory. That's when the police called. He's like, hello, can I speak to Robert Williams? And I was like, this is him. He was like, you got to tell him, come turn yourself in. The officer wouldn't say what Robert was accused of doing. I assumed it was a prank call, of course, because... I hadn't done anything, so there was no reason for me to turn myself in. He was weirded out by the calls, but hadn't committed any crimes, so he headed home. So when I get on my street, I see the police car, and I ride past. It's a Detroit police cop, I mean police car. And I'm like, Detroit? I'm still trying to process it in my head. So I pull in the driveway, and then they pull in behind me and block me in in the driveway and proceeded to tell me that I was under arrest. His wife, Melissa, was trying to keep the children calm. As soon as he pulled in the driveway, they put the cuffs on him. It was just very quick. And at the time, we had a five and a two-year-old. The officers showed him a warrant for felony larceny in Detroit, 25 minutes away. I said, y'all got the wrong guy. And he was like, look, I'm just here doing my job. We didn't even, we were like, what do you steal in Detroit? We don't shop in Detroit. The officers drove Robert to a detention centre. They have you do a mouth swab so that they can put your DNA on file. And they, I had to do palm prints and fingerprints. And I'm like, y'all got all this information in the system for something I didn't even do. He tried finding out what was the actual crime, but got nowhere. And that night, he slept with an empty stomach on the cement floor, using his coat for a pillow. In the morning, he was taken to an interrogation room, Two detectives sat across the table and they'd laid out three large photos, face down. And he flips over, starting uh, starting on my left, which would have been his right, and he flips over a paper and he said, and he point, pushes it toward me. The photos were blown up stills of grainy surveillance footage 
showing a large black man standing in front of a watch display. And Robert is told that more than a year ago, this man stole thousands of dollars worth of watches from a store in Detroit. He's like, so that's not you? And I'm like, no. I I knew it wasn't me by looking at it, but I don't know if they could tell at first glance. And then I wanted to ask him, do you think all black people look alike? Just because he was a big black guy. That don't make it me, though. Robert holds up a photo to his face. Ask them, does this look like me? The detective admits it doesn't. He's like, so his computer, so the computer got it wrong. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, the computer got it wrong. And then they're looking at the pictures themselves and they're like, yeah, um, what do you think? Huh? Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't look like him. All right. And then they're like, all right, well, we're sorry. Now, even though he looks nothing like the man in the footage, Robert still has to go to court. And now that he's caught up in the machine of justice, he can't get out. I'm pissed, right? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm ready to go. And he's like, well, we're not detectives on your case, so we can't even let you go. He was like, but you can plead not guilty. And when it goes to court, they'll probably throw it out. 30 hours after being locked up, Robert is let go. He's still charged and will have to appear in court in two weeks. Now, at this point, Robert still doesn't know the full story of how police linked his face to the grainy surveillance footage. But he's about to find out. We knew this was going to happen. We'd been running around saying this is going to happen. That's Phil Mayer from the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, a non-profit for defending civil liberties. When Melissa called me and, and I talked to her and Robert about the story, uh, I was like, this is it. We, we have it. And, you know, we, we knew this was happening. And now, now we can prove it. Phil picked up Robert's case and he got the charges dismissed. They just say, uh, we're, we're going to let this case go. They don't tell you why. Why you were like caught in this, you know, nightmare scenario. So Robert sued. And that's when the truth was finally outed. The system that was used uh, in in Robert's case was um, was a system consisting of every driver's license photo basically taken in the entire state of Michigan for about a 20-year period. It's like 50 million photos. So they they run this through, uh, they run the, the picture from the security camera through this system and it spits out like 486 possible photos. It was AI, facial recognition, the CCTV ended up on the police's desk. They ran it through the system and matched with an old license photo. Robert's photo, the one that they used to identify as an investigative lead, was listed as the ninth most probable, not even the most probable. They showed Robert's license photo and the security footage to a store assistant, who wasn't even there at the time of the theft. And she said it was him. And that was the whole basis for Robert's arrest. Police didn't even check if he had an alibi, which he did have. And I look on my phone and I had a, a video of me driving home at the so-called time of the, of the incident. Like, um, and I was listening to music driving home from work. This was the time and the date of the said robbery. The thing is, you know, shoddy technology leads to shoddy investigations. Uh, any of us who have ever turned the wrong direction when Google Maps told us to, even when we knew Google Maps was wrong, can understand this. You know, we develop this dependency on the technology. And when you give police a, a lead and it says the computer says it might be this guy, 
you know, the, the whole investigation just gets slanted. So what Phil's saying there is the problem isn't just the technology. It's our tendency to think it's infallible, even when the flaws have already been documented. Before Robert Williams was arrested, there'd been studies showing the particular facial recognition system Detroit police used was more likely to misidentify people of colour. Detroit is one of the uh, blackest cities in America. It's, uh, it's a majority black city. And here it is investing uh, millions of dollars of taxpayer money in using a technology that is particularly unreliable in identifying black faces. It's a, it's a pretty uh, astounding juxtaposition. So Detroit police were over-relying on unreliable technology. Microsoft was releasing a racist and misogynist chatbot. Google's photo software tagged black people as gorillas. Why does this mistake keep happening over and over? It's not just because the neural nets are being trained on flawed data. It also comes down to who's doing the training. That is, it's just as much a human issue as a technological one. Here's Raman Chowdhury again. In order to have the kind of job you would need to make an artificial intelligence technology that's going to impact people's lives, you are already a very privileged person. You are somebody who likely has a PhD or has access to you know, advanced computing. On top of this class privilege, the AI world is what Dr. Mitchell calls a sea of dudes. 80% of AI professionals are men, mostly white when you work on ethics is that you you come to the realization that at the heart of so many matters is the lack of inclusion of people with different perspectives. The heart of the matter is often who was at the table from the start um, and the fact that it wasn't, you know, Black technical women, that kind of thing. The AI world has a blind spot for racism, sexism and other targeted abuse. You have never been targeted as a man. You've never been targeted with misogynistic content. And so it's your sort of blind spot in thinking that this is appropriate data. So I think that kind of thinking is reflective of sort of an insular, you know, white male Silicon Valley mindset. Now, in Silicon Valley, there's at least two views on the AI bias problem. One is to move fast and break things let neural networks rip, train them on all the data, and worry about society later. And the other view is to say, no, we're responsible for the impacts. Is a moral imperative always at odds with a capitalistic framework, or is there some way to kind of fit it in? Around the time Robert Williams was sleeping on a cold cell floor in Detroit, big tech started laying off its responsible AI advocates. Rahman says this process continued on and off for the next three years. We all just got laid off. Um, And in some cases, it was pointed, targeted, and malicious. In other cases, it was ruthless cost-cutting efforts. The first high-profile layoff took place at Google in 2020. Margaret Mitchell, the same Dr. Mitchell who was working at Microsoft during the Tay debacle, was at Google by this point. She was running its ethical AI team with Ethiopian-born computer scientist Timnit Gebru. They wrote a paper arguing against very large language models. If the data set is too big for you to be able to somehow quantify what the racism is looking like, uh, what stereotypes are there, what sort of beliefs are there, if it's too big for that, then it's too big to train a model that's then you know, deployed to billions of people. An AI trained on the entire internet will be prejudiced because that's the internet. Next minute... 
Google executives asked Dr. Gebru and Dr. Mitchell to retract the paper. Now, we don't know exactly why they did this, but it's fair to say that Google saw potential in large language models. And the idea they were inherently racist or sexist was not welcome. Dr. Mitchell says Google treated its top AI ethicists as disposable. And so when we had pushback to putting out that paper, the way the pushback was put forward struck me as speaking more to the fact that Tim Neat was a black woman and less about the quality of the paper. And so I obviously objected to that. Google claims Dr. Gebru resigned. But Dr. Gebru says Google fired her on the spot. And that's Dr. Mitchell's take as well. This is the fundamental problem of AI ethics, is treating Black women like they don't belong uh, in exclusionary ways, uh, firing them on the spot. <laughs> About a year after Dr. Gebru's departure, Dr. Mitchell was also fired. Google says it was due to violations of its code of conduct, including its security policies. The sort of basic summary was that I couldn't be complicit in what they were doing. Me and Google had to agree to disagree on right and wrong on that. About a year later, Elon Musk bought Twitter and fired its 17-person ethical AI team, including the director, Dr. Chowdhury. I think that this was just a series of very, very horrible things that happened and very, very greedy people behind it. Microsoft then laid off its entire ethical AI team. So did Meta and Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. I would say that there are a lot of people who work on responsible AI today in companies, but it's it, it's it's different. I think it's going through another another shift of trying to find its voice in what it means in industry. As ethics teams are fired across the industry, the march of AI continues. Since Robert Williams's arrest, at least five more Americans have been wrongfully arrested due to facial recognition. All of them have been black men and women. The most recent case was an eight-month pregnant black woman. Robert is still suing Detroit police and campaigning to ban any use of facial recognition for law enforcement. He says he'll keep campaigning, even if the technology isn't racially biased. I don't want to be surveilled at all times. I guess it makes sense for crime, but what about people who's just living life? Even if the police's wrongs here can be righted, the damage caused by their use of flawed AI has left a lasting impact. Robert's wife, Melissa, says the children are scarred by the experience of seeing Robert get arrested. And while his case got dismissed, police never found who stole the watches. A year and a half after the cop car pulled up in their driveway, their daughter, Julia, called the family together. We were out doing yard work and she called a family meeting, closed the blinds, it was very serious, and she said, we have to figure out who did this. And so out of nowhere, so you don't, you don't know how much it's affected her, and she was still, like, she pulled out this cartoon character drawing and was like, we have to, like, hold it up and, like, show them that this is not... He didn't do it. Yeah, she wanted to clear my name. This is Hello AI Overlords, a science fiction series. I'm James Pertil. Our show is made on the lands of the Wajak Noongar, Wiradjuri and Palawa. 
with production by Jordan Fennell, Erica Voles, and Will Ockenden. Our sound engineer was Tim Jenkins. Next episode, when you think about a driverless car future, your mind probably goes to being driven around, watching movies, from the back seat, drinking martinis. Oh, the car just arrived. And I'm going to put on my seatbelt. At every turn, perfect driverless cars have seemed only a few years away. In reality, it's been far more complicated. It is not driving tentatively at all. If there's, you know, pedestrians, it will definitely stop for them. But driverless taxis are already on the roads of San Francisco and they're crashing and causing chaos. So are the cars safe? They can do some things, but it's still a long way from being as good as an Uber driver. They're much slower, not good in heavy traffic, and they're really bad in unusual situations. And should we be testing them on public roads? Subscribe and follow so you don't miss the next episode. Find us on the ABC Listen app. Search for Science Friction. See you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.